All right, thank you, Michelle, and thanks for uh, inviting me to share with you today. Um, I uh, love speaking to sharing whatever uh, my master share with Chapel Street women. I have great respect for the women's ministry here. As you know, I know the director <laughs> of Chapel Street. Hang on a second. This is doing something funny. Um, and I have great respect for the ministry because uh, I hope you know that year after year, here at Chapel Street Church, the women's ministry uh, has as much or more impact than any other single department we have in the church. If we measure that by the number of people who are first-time contacts that come through women's ministries or families that are contacted and connected, uh, it's just a huge engine in the life of the church. It has been for a long time. So uh, I start off with that because, um, first of all, I want you to like me, and second, because uh, what, what, what you do matters. What you do matters here at the church. Uh, week after week, sitting at tables with women and the programming and the stuff that our women's ministry does, it really doesn't matter. And, and, and then the, and the, the trajectory usually is uh, women in our culture are the first ones to connect to a new church home. If it's from no church background or some church background, it's usually the women in our culture are more open spiritually. And then the children come because the woman comes and she likes something, she brings her kids. And then lastly, they drag dad in, screaming, and we hope when they finally get here, they go, oh, that's not too bad. Um, anyway, so that's the way it works. So thank you so much for what you, you do. Um, I also love women's ministries because they have great snacks. <laughs> Every single meeting, there's great snacks. So. Michelle asked me to talk to you a little bit about listening, and, and more specifically about listening in crisis. Now, uh, she's also showed me a, the, the manual you all have. The, your leaders do a great job preparing you for what you do. Um, really sets the standard for preparing leaders to minister in small groups and so forth. So a lot of this you will have heard in some context before. Uh, maybe I can just put a little spin on it from the pastoral perspective. You might hear a couple of things that might help you, particularly as you listen to people in crisis but in a group setting. So that's what I'm talking about. I want to start with a little story, though, that just because it just happened and, and it makes me smile. Somewhere in the week between Christmas and New Year's, um, you know, we'd had all our boys were home at the same time for like 24 hours, 48 hours over the Christmas break, and then they all went off to their separate places except for our son Jesse, the 26-year-old who lives in our basement, goes to grad, grad school and so forth. So we were there. At some point, we were home, and uh, I was on the couch. Jesse was sitting on the couch, and Lorene was walking around doing some different things, and uh, we were watching something on TV. Or usually, we sit there watching some game or something, and we have our laptops open. I'm sort of doing this and sort of watching the game. That's kind of typically how an evening goes at our house. And that's important information for you to know for the story I'm going to tell because I was, I was watching something happening on the TV. Okay? And so I become aware as I'm watching TV that, that Lorraine comes into the room and she says something to me. <laughs> and with the part of my consciousness that's aware of something like that, um, I hear her say, um, this is our first day missing Canaan. That's our youngest son. And that made sense to me because he had just been home over Christmas break and left the day before. So that made sense. So without taking my eyes off the TV, which I was watching and focused on, I said, um, yeah, I miss Canaan too. And then there was an awkward pause <laughs> and silence, which I didn't, real, didn't notice until she spoke again. And what she said was, what did you think I said? <laughs> At that point, I took my, I, I, my, my censors said something had gone wrong. So I looked away from the TV at her, and I said, you said today is our first day missing Canaan. 
And she burst into laughter. My son Jesse almost fell off the couch laughing. And she said, I said, this is our first week missing our cleaning lady. I tell you that story for really three reasons. First of all, it's instructive because never speak to a man when he's looking at a TV. Brain doesn't work like that. Wah, 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 so Charlie Brown. First get his attention. And then say what you need to say. Secondly, though, um, listening is not as easy as it seems. And all of you know that already. And there are different kinds of listening. Another story that happened just last week at South Street Campus. I was preaching there. And in between services, a man came up to the front. I was, I was engaged with someone already who had a question. And a man I've known for 30 years or so came up and stood there. It was a little unusual. He doesn't usually come and talk to me after... Uh, a message, but he was waiting. He waited patiently. I finished with this person, finished with that person, and walked over. He walked right up to me, and he said, "Thank you for the timely message." His next sentence was, "I was diagnosed with stomach cancer this week." There are different kinds of listening. That I heard very clearly in the setting, and had a chance to follow up. And you all face that kind of thing week in, week out, every week. That could happen, and probably does happen at your group. Um, Isaiah chapter 50 has a beautiful verse. Uh, there's a line to that. Ignore that. You know how to fix that. Um, <laughs> it's not crossing that out. But I like this for the, for the last phrase. It said, uh, this is the prophet Isaiah. It says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. There's another translation of that that says, to listen as one being taught. And that's really interesting to me. It's a piece of ancient wisdom. Now, the, the prophet there is talking mostly about what it means to listen to God, who speaks to us by his spirit or through his word. But I think we can, we're not, we're not uh, damaging scripture too much to think about it in terms of listening to another person. Um, to listen as one being taught. To listen to a person just diagnosed with stomach cancer. Um, it's a different kind of listening. And so I want to uh, spend the, the first few minutes reviewing what you have already been through in some of your training. Some of you may have missed this, but it's what are called the five levels of communication. Uh, as you get from the, the most surface level down to the deepest level of communication, you can go through all five of these in one week in your group. Maybe you did so just today. So let me just tick through these. It won't take much time in these because you've been through them already. First, there is the level of cliche conversation. In our culture, this is what people do when they first enter a room. You probably did it when you first got to your group today, when you first walked in here. When you haven't seen someone for a while, it's uh, the first few minutes of any social gathering in North American culture. It's, uh, hi, how's it going? How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How about that snowstorm uh, the other day? Did you have a nice Christmas? How are the kids? Just safe public information. Nothing risky, personal, or deep. Uh, it's just what we do to get kind of warmed up. Okay? And then we move to sharing information and facts. People warm up a little bit. And especially if they know each other, they'll move pretty quickly to talking about general events, uh, facts, things that have happened, but not necessarily personal beliefs or issues. For example, did you watch that Bears game? I can't believe you missed that field goal. <laughs> We're going to come back to that a little bit later. <laughs> or did you, did you travel over the holidays? Something like that. Just information. And then there's a level after that, third level, sharing ideas and opinions. This is a little bit deeper where people start to risk a little more sharing their personal ideas, maybe their opinions about something, maybe political views, or maybe 
you know, the Bears really need to get a new field goal kicker. <laughs> or in the case of a Bible study group, uh, what they learned uh, from a teacher's lesson that day, what they think a certain passage might mean. In fact, women come to a Bible study group expecting to go to at least this level, expecting at least to share things they've learned, the opinions uh, about uh, the Bible, and they want to communicate at that level. For example, it's interesting uh, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also loving your neighbor as yourself. That's really interesting. What does he mean by that? The level of, of personal opinion. But still not necessarily sharing anything that's deeply personal. That's the next level, level four. Uh, now people are going beyond what they think, beyond ideas, opinions to what they feel. I was so sad when he missed that field goal. <laughs> Or the Bible example, you know, it's interesting Jesus said that, but I really struggle to love my neighbor because she screamed at my children once when they walked across her yard. That's personal. Sharing to this level is a little more vulnerable. And that's where you want to get people around your table to get to that place. And then lastly, what they call peak communication, the very deepest level of communication, openness, transparency, self-disclosure, very risky, requires a really high level of trust, like I've decided to file for divorce. Or, uh, I think my son's addicted to drugs. Or, I was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Okay? When we are leading a group, we want to guide the group to level four and level five because that's where genuine growth and genuine relationships happen. Now, two things about this. First, in order for a group to get to that place, a leader has to create a certain atmosphere. In your training material, I like the phrase it uses. It says, you are not just a group leader, you're an environmentalist. You're aware of the atmosphere around your table. You're aware of all the, the air between people, what's happening. That's a really good description. You're an environmentalist. Um, second, when a group or when an individual in that group begins to share deeper, begins to get to this level of, of, of vulnerability and experiences, it's when we as leaders can, can very quickly feel a little overwhelmed, like, what do I do with that? I wasn't expecting that today. Or, uh, and things can go sideways in a hurry because somebody else might say something uh, in the group that you need to step in front of, and those kinds of things. We'll talk about that. So Michelle asked me to talk a little bit about listening to people in crisis, uh, and in particular, listening to people in crisis in a group context. Um, imagine a scenario. Uh, your group time is just starting, you know, you sat around a table, you just heard the lesson, however you, you do it, and the women in your group are just chatting, mostly level one and level two conversation, getting caught up a little bit, and someone arrives, maybe a couple minutes after everybody else, and they clearly look upset, this woman, uh, disheveled, uh, uh, been crying, eyes swollen, so you look at her, you say, everything okay? And she says, blurts out sort of, I just found out my husband's having an affair, and she has her cell phone right there. Burst into tears. Now, what do you do as a leader? You just get ready to start the meeting. This happens. How do you handle that? Or let's say the group's moving along in discussion. You're halfway into a discussion about some, um, some, some passage of scripture you've been studying and learning about. And a group member, member pipes, up and say, pipes up and says, my son was arrested for DUI last night. Or our daughter told us she's gay. And it comes up right in the middle of a conversation, right in the middle of a group time. Uh, my brother Joe, who's a pastor uh, in Ohio, Way back in the early days, when we were both just getting started out in ministry, I, I still have this letter somewhere, but when we actually wrote letters, you know, he wrote a letter to me, and he was kind of sharing some insights about what he was learning in his first year or two doing this thing called pastor, right? And he said three things that I've never forgotten because I think they're true. He said he's learned that ministry happens in relationships, 
The ministry takes place over time. And ministry often takes place through pain. I think all three of those things are true. Almost all the time. Ministry happens in relationship over time and through pain. Now, if you add that ministry almost always begins with listening, it fits. Listening to someone's story, listening to someone's pain, listening to someone in crisis. As a leader, how do you respond appropriately to the person in crisis, but in a group context? Now, we all know that crisis in our lives happens in all kinds of ways. How many of you um, would recognize if I say the Mayhem commercials? The Allstate Mayhem commercials? I thought we'd have a little fun today. Mayhem happens in all kinds of ways. And I want to warn you ahead of time, at the end of this little spot, 30 seconds, do not look at the guy's hand. Tuesday. Cleaning lady. Don't look, I told you not to look. Yeah. So Mayhem happens in all kinds of ways. Most common forms of mayhem you might come across, grief and loss. You know, I, I lead the team, team men's ministry on Friday mornings. 200-some guys meet there, and we have a prayer time at the end. Heart, a week does not go by that someone doesn't mention a loss in someone's family that they know. Grief and loss. Life is all about losses, so somebody's likely to walk in having just suffered a loss. Or maybe sickness or disease. Cancer touches... Every family, sooner or later, if it's not that, it's something else. Maybe it's family issues, maybe depression, anxiety. And quite often, there's another level of crisis that happens when these crises happen, and that is a crisis of faith. Um, what do I think about God? That's why we're doing Explore God right now as a church. What happens to my faith when I'm going through a crisis? I'm pretty sure all of you, if I open it up, could think back just to this ministry season, and you've had issues like this pop up right at your table in the relationships you have with those women. So, listening well... To someone in crisis starts with creating a safe place. Uh, I'll give you, a, give you an illustration. A couple of years ago, now a 70-year-old woman, 70, 70 plus, uh, came up to the front after a service over at South Street Campus, right between services. She walks up to the front and she shares with me in those few minutes between services, people are milling around, all the noise, organs playing. She shares with me that when she was nine years old, her father sexually abused her and it continued till she was 14. And then she said, I've never told anyone about this until today. Not her husband of almost 50 years, not anyone in her family. I was the first person. She had held that since she was nine years old. First, it was overwhelming because it broke my heart. But secondly, I was glad because the only way she could have walked up there is that she had decided church was a safe enough place. Of all the other places in her life, that was safe enough. And for whatever reason, she had decided that she trusted me, that, that she saw me as a safe place uh, to begin that conversation. And we carried that conversation on for several months, and she, it's a long story, but got through a, a whole bunch of steps of healing and still in our church today. Um, but it took about took a year or so of talking through that. So people come to group settings, even church groups with all kinds of hopes and fears. 
Will I be accepted? Will I be liked? Will I sound foolish or will I sound stupid? People are really concerned about that when it comes to Bible studies. I don't know anything about the Bible. So I, I tell the guys at the team, it's okay to be Bible stupid. It's okay to be Bible stupid. You don't have to know a bunch of stuff about the Bible. And guys want to know it's okay because they don't even know how to ask a question sometimes. All right? But when people are experiencing crisis, these feelings and insecurities are magnified greatly. Fear, anger, pain, grief, embarrassment, shame, part of all that. And there's hardly anything as damaging to a person's faith than finally deciding to trust a place to bring up their pain and, and to be either ridiculed for it or to be shamed for it. And they're not likely to ever try that again in the context of faith. So the first thing, most important thing to do, you as a leader, is you, you need to be a safe place in and of yourself. Now, a few do's and don'ts. But this might be helpful to tick through a bunch of things here. There's five. I have five don'ts for you and five do's for you. They kind of cross over. They're very similar, but just by way of framing things. First, when someone shares crisis, uh, don't be shocked. Okay? This sounds simple, but I've come to believe that refusing to be shocked, uh, refusing to give away what you might have actually felt when they say that, when they said whatever they had to say, is really, really important in the first step in listening. Um, my dad's been in ministry, uh, he's retired now, he's 85, but he was in active ministry until he was almost 80. And he's got a zillion stories if I can get him to tell them. Um, some of them really, really interesting. If you do it that long, you're going to hear some really, really uh, interesting crisis situations. One of them happened years ago when a woman came in to see him and was talking to him about uh, her, her issue was her husband. And her crisis was she suspected... Uh, she, she had caught her husband. She came home early from work one day, and her husband was in their house wearing her underwear. <laughs> oh, see, you did it. Right, right there. Okay. <laughs> so everything in him wanted to go, what? <laughs> but you have to train yourself not to react that way, because there's already a weirdness and shame about that, okay? I know you want to hear more about that. But <laughs> Or a man came to see me years ago, and his issue was about his wife. What he shared with me is his wife had run up $80,000 on her credit cards. $80,000. It was the second time she'd done it. She had an addiction to spending. She hid credit cards like, like alcoholic kind of bottles. And it was destroying her family. And part of me wanted to go, whoa, <laughs> you got a problem. <laughs> so, so. So when someone takes the risk uh, to share something personal, something painful, the first thing they need is the assurance that someone is going to take them seriously, willing to hear them out without a dramatic or overly emotional reaction. And they find that in our face and in our voice. They do. And they will notice the slightest um, shock that you demonstrate and often. And when, I, and when this happens to me over the years, when I, when I can't control it, that, that personal office always shuts down. Well, you don't want to, you, this is not the time to share this. I, 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 don't want to, I don't want to put this on you. I don't want, and they, they kind of explain their way out of it. But if I can look at them and remain, my, and remain cool and sort of calm and with a very even tone, can maintain eye contact and said, I'm so glad you shared that. I can't imagine how hard that was to do. Tell me a little bit more about that story. And lean forward to them. Then they, they, they'll, they'll keep talking. But if I react backward and act shocked and like they're, they're contaminated, then often they stop. So be a safe place. Secondly, don't minimize. By minimizing, I mean the instinct that most of us have to 
to kind of reduce the discomfort we feel in hearing someone else's pain. We say something like, you know, oh, uh, oh, cheer up. It's not that bad. You know, it could be worse. I knew someone once. And we sort of deflect. And this often shows up in the form of at least. Someone says, our house burned down. And we say, well, at least no one was in the house. Well, I've just minimized that person's experience and their pain. Someone says, my son flunked out of school. A friend says, well, at least he has his health. Well, a, listen, a listener, a good listener, never leases on somebody. It's a temptation, but it doesn't help someone who's in crisis. When we minimize, we're essentially telling them that they're overreacting, their issue isn't that big of a deal, uh, and they're, they're really kind of a wimp. Okay? When we minimize, we rob the person of their own pain and their process. Thirdly, don't over-spiritualize. Um, years ago, uh, not, not that long ago, actually, uh, I, I was doing a funeral at a tragic, I mean, tra- all funerals are tragic in their own way, but it was a death of a child. And I overheard heard someone in the receiving line, in the uh, line of the wake, greeting line, say something to this mother who had lost her child. I said, well, God must have needed, you, you probably have a thousand of these, God must have needed another angel in heaven. I want to slap that lady. <laughs> <laughs> or you have other children. You have other children. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. At or least you, you have, other, have children. other children. At least you can do a double twofer. A twofer. Yeah. At least and okay. I want to because there's so much wrong with that. First of all, people who die go to heaven are angels. They are angels. Just theologically speaking, that's a problem. Okay, but it doesn't help that that grieving mother. It's over spiritualizing. Um, and over spiritualizing is an occupational hazard for us as Christians. I think. We believe God cares about people. We believe he's personal. We believe he can and will bring comfort and growth, even through our difficult circumstances. We're preaching about that this weekend. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Uh, But sometimes we unintentionally short-circuit the process by saying something like, well, the Lord must want to teach you something. Maybe true, but not helpful at a time of crisis and pain. Fourth, uh, don't discount. It's very similar to minimizing, but uh, discounting... Um, I overheard uh, uh, these, these were high school kids. One kid went, was going through a, uh, a, a loss. Thing. I think he might have lost his mom or dad or something. And I heard another high school said, I know exactly how you feel. My dog died last year. The, the high school kid was sincerely trying to empathize, um, but a loss of a pet's nowhere near the loss of a person. And even if it was a loss of a person, nobody ever knows exactly what somebody else feels. You can't say that. It's not true. Even if you both lost your mom, it's a different situation, different relationship. You can't assume that. Um, resist the temptation to go to your own story. We all have, have that temptation. Somebody else is talking, we start thinking of our own story, and it makes us feel more in control to talk about what we've experienced rather than ask them the next question. Um, while it can be comforting to know that other people have gone through loss and pain, no one knows exactly how someone else feels. And when we do that, we discount a person. It's better to say, I have no idea how much that hurts, but I care. I have no idea what you feel, but I care. And lastly, uh, don't give advice. Uh, As a man, as a husband, uh, I kind of have this innate tendency to try to fix things. And early in our marriage, um, it's probably happened recently too, but I'd come home from from work and say, you know, how was your day? She might say, the boys have been fighting, I overcooked the chicken, I have a terrible headache. And before I even took my coat off, I would say, well, put the boys in timeout. I'll order a pizza for dinner and take a couple time off for that headache. Boom, done. <laughs> but she wouldn't seem very appreciative. I was confused by that. 
you solved all your problems. <laughs> because that's not what you needed. Our first and, important, first and most important job in a crisis is not to give advice, not to try to fix, even if it's really clear. Don't give advice. Don't try to fix. Just listen. Now, five to-dos. These are very related. But listen without judgment. It goes hand-to-hand with not being shocked. Uh, people who are experiencing crisis often experience embarrassment and shame, even if it's not their fault. Um, in John chapter 8 in the New Testament, a woman's dragged before Jesus uh, because she was, quote-unquote, caught in the act of adultery. A lot of questions about that. How did they catch her in the act? Beating time, whatever. You know. But they catch her in the act. Then we'll drag the man to drag her. So their intent is to shame this woman and to trap Jesus into, into making a mistake in his judgment. Um, and as you know, we get to the end of the story. He first he confronts the men. And then when he finally looks at this woman, he looks at her and speaks to her like a person, not like a thing. It's, it's remarkable. And he says, where are your accusers? Does no one accuse you? She goes, no. And he says, neither do I. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. Okay. But his treatment of her, he refuses to judge, refuses to be shocked, he treats her like a person, and he speaks directly to her in a gentle sort of way, but in a clear way. You may remember in the, in the great story of the book of Job, uh, Job's friends, they first they, they come to him when he's in pain, and they sit with him for seven days and seven nights without saying anything because his pain is great. They did the right thing. And then they start talking. <laughs> and they start trying to convince him that he's suffering because he must have done something wrong. They judge him over and over again. And God, at the end of the book of Job, is not very happy with those friends. In fact, he's furious with those friends because they've misrepresented him to Job. So listen without judgment. Second, uh, listen with focus and calmness. What I mean here is to listen hard. To listen to more than what is being said. Often we'll start listening, and when a person says a certain word, uh, like divorce, or gay, or suicide, our minds will, will just let them start to run off in that direction to what we think about that, uh, that word, or what we've experienced about that word, or what we know about that word, and we've stopped listening to everything that's happening in that person's life and in their hearts. Listening with focus and calmness means to resist the natural urge to go off on a tangent and stay focused on that person, what they think and what they feel. Then listen, thirdly, for the main issue. In my experience, when someone um, shares a crisis... Um, it's rarely one thing. They'll come in, they'll, they'll start with something, but there's usually a, a several, there's, le- there's issue upon issue upon issue piled up on each other, which is really, the last one is the one that broke the camel's back, but there's a lot of issues all piled up together. And I tend to call them piles or layers, but I, I kind of go with piles. For example, a woman in your group shares that her husband recently lost his job. Okay? The issues she faces quickly pile up. Finances get tight. She feels that pressure. College-aged son's education is now in jeopardy. A fear and anxiety start to set in. Husband slips toward depression. A wife starts to feel frustrated, even angry, because the husband's just sitting around and moping, feeling sorry for himself. Then she feels guilty for being angry at her husband, and then the marriage begins to shelter. That's, like, that's seven piles right there out of one issue. So listen for the issue. Listen for the issue behind the issue. Ask a question. Ask a follow-up. And then... Um, Try to help. Sometimes it helps people just to organize the piles. Sometimes when I get done with this process, it might take an hour. And I keep reviewing. Okay, you have this. You have this. You have this. You have this. And I'll say, you know what? Your emotional system is working right. You should be feeling upset right now. You should be feeling incredible stress and anxiety. Look at what you're dealing. With. Look at what you're carrying around. So now let's go back and look at them one at a time, 
And it helps people just to sort of organize their piles. They can feel a little bit more capable of, of dealing with things. So listen, and then after that, you can kind of zero in on the heaviest of the issues and sort of start there. And then fourth, protect the person in pain. Uh, one of our jobs in um, group ministries is to uh, protect the person in crisis. So a group member says, uh, some, share something about a crisis happening. Uh, then someone in the group other than you as the leader jumps in and responds uh, kind of eh, inappropriately. For example, uh, starts to judge that person. Well, you know, the Bible says homosexuals are going to hell. Or, you know, the Bible says suicide is the unforgivable sin. Before you have a chance to even stop it. So now you've got this weird thing. And now what do you do? Uh, you have to step in at all costs and protect the person who's in crisis. You have to step in and stop that, put a tourniquet on it. You say, oh, we're going to hold that right there for a second. Let's, let's take this in a different direction. And you just redirect and go back to the person. Tell me more about that. And don't let it go down that, that trail. Don't let, you have to protect the person who's hurting at all costs. Even if you have to be abrupt with the person who just said that in your group. It's more important to protect that person. So protect the person who's in pain. Protect by assuring of support and love. And then the fifth thing is protect the person and uh, protect the group. Oops, sorry, missed one. Protect the group. Now here's the rub. Uh, most of what we talked about, uh, listening to people in crisis, is hard enough in a one-on-one setting, but you're not in a one-on-one setting. You're in a group setting. It's way more difficult in a group setting. See, the group you're leading in this uh, uh, context is not a therapy group, so you can't let the whole group go down that trail because you're, you're there for a different reason. Um, so how do you do it? It comes up in the middle of a, of a group session. You can't ignore it because this person's weeping right there. They have this huge crisis. But you also can't turn that group into a therapy session. So what do you do? And I'm sure you've been trained uh, in, in, in this way as well. But you might respond by, uh, you know, you listen, you follow up, you identify the issue, and then that's all protecting the person. Tell me more, what's happening. Uh, and then to protect the group, you sort of contain it. You can sometimes stop right there. Okay, let's take, can we take a minute as a group just to pray for Sally? Let's pray and just pause everybody because everybody needs to do something about it. So you pause right there, you pray for the person in detail, and then you move on with your setting. Or you say, you know, that's so important. There's so many things going on there. I, I, we need to talk. Can we talk about this right after the group and set up another time to get together? Or maybe we can set up a, a conversation with you and a pastor and you sort of delay it and move it to the side. So everybody knows you've dealt with it, but then you go back to the group. So you need to protect the person and the group. Okay, that's a quick run through that first section um, or the second session. Uh, now I want to move to listening as being hard work. Um, listening is hard work. Um, a long time ago, I, I, uh, I had a, my office was at South Street on the first level, and um, a lady made an appointment to see me. I no longer remember about what it was about, but it was a crisis situation, probably marriage or something like that. But for some reason, I said the, the appointment was in the afternoon, like 2 or 2.30, two 3 o'clock, maybe in the afternoon. And so it was after lunchtime, and I, there was a window in my office. It wasn't clear, but the, the sun would come in, and it was, it was, I remember being kind of warm. And I, 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 I was sitting with this, with this lady, and she started to, she started to tell me uh, her story. And, and um, I was listening, trying to pay attention, and I could feel myself getting a little... It was afternoon, and, it was, and all of a sudden I realized I woke up. With no idea how long, without a long blink, what was that? How long was that? I, she was still talking, so I really... It, 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 but, but it, I was, I was mortified that I actually 
fell asleep. Because listening is hard work. It just wore me out. I never made it. I stopped making appointments in the afternoons. I just don't listen well in the afternoon. But listening is highly unnatural. It's, it's hard because it's highly unnatural. It is a skill that can be developed, but most of us, uh, unless we develop this skill, we listen just long enough to find our opportunity to talk about ourselves or our experience. Which, by the way, why, why it's hard to remember people's names when you first meet them. Because you meet somebody, somebody introduces somebody, and you immediately start thinking about how am I, how am I coming across, how am I, and you forget the name. Okay? That's what happens. Um, but you can, be, you can train yourself to, to stop that line of thought and stay focused on the other person. And you do that by being active. Listening is an active thing. It's not passive. The reason I got drowsy in that session is probably because I got passive. Right? I didn't engage. I didn't stay engaged. So I was the one that drifted, not the person. Um, you can listen for different little things to keep you, keep you engaged. Uh, for a, I had a, a, a lady come to see me a um, long, long time ago who was a pathological talker. I, I, I use that in, a, in an affectionate sense. But, <laughs> but some people can just talk. Some people actually talk to filibuster pain. I learned this from this lady. Okay? She, first time she came to talk, she talked. I mean, she was, I'd never seen anybody do this before. She was talking, talking, talking. I couldn't get a word. She came to talk to me. Literally. And, I, and she, she wasn't interested in anything I had to say. Didn't leave any spaces. She just, and, and she just talked. So she set a second appointment. This time, the second one, I decided, I'm going to see how long she can talk. I'm not even going to try. I'll see how long she can go. She went 55 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Without even taking a breath. It was, it was astonishing. So the third time, I decided, okay, I'm going to interrupt her every time she changes the subject. Every time she shifts, I'm going to stop her. Oh, go back to, go back to what you were just saying. I think I did it three times. And she broke into tears and talking about a, a twin sister who had died uh, in her childhood. And I realized she was filibustering to keep from feeling pain. She was talking to keep from feeling everything. Okay? But I had to be active. I had to, it, was, it's, it's, it was, it's really hard to interrupt somebody every time they change their direction because it took energy. But that's listening um, in an active way. Listening is focus. If you missed that, listening is active. Listening is also focus. Um, not on what you think, but on what the speaker is thinking and feeling. We've covered that already. And then listening is more than words. I noticed in some of your uh, training material, this is focused on quite a bit. It's not just what is being said, but it's how it's be being said. The tone, facial expression, eyes. You know, someone's eyes. You can, if you pay attention, you can notice when the first little film of wetness covers somebody's eyes and the emotion starts to come out of their eyes. You can notice, and that can tell you there's something rising up to the surface right here. Tell me what the tears are about. What are the tears about? And quite often, then you have a, an outburst because you've just given somebody permission. Their body language, and when you notice, you can follow up. How somebody sitting? How are they telling you? How uncomfortable do they feel? Uh, and then, lastly, uh, fifth, listening. Uh, oops, I'm missing a point here. Listening is fo I, saw, I call it following up. That is uh, asking a follow-up question or two. Uh, you can uh, follow up right there in your group, or you can say, um, you know, is it be okay if I followed up with you with, with an email in a day or so, or with a phone call? If someone shared something important and painful, you can pray at the group and then make sure you follow up with that person uh, a day or two later, or give them your email, give them your phone number so they can follow up. So following up is important to keep the listening process going. And finally, listening to a group. Uh, as a group leader, um, whatever the group, you have a hard job. Because you're not just listening to the person who's speaking, 
You're listening to how the other people are listening to that person who is speaking. So you're listening to someone here, and you're, you try to be aware with radar what's happening around the table. How is, the, is somebody reacting weirdly? Is somebody backing up? Is somebody getting angry? Is somebody getting anxious? Is, is, did it trigger somebody else's crisis? And now, now you have two people crying. That can happen. I, I suppose that might happen at a women's group more than a guy's group. But in a guy's group, it happens in more different ways. You know, um, with, with guys' groups, it's usually somebody shares, somebody else starts laughing. It's how guys care. But it's ten times harder listening in a group than it is listening to a person by themselves, and it matters. So all that to say, what you do in your groups week by week, uh, doing your best to stay on track with the discussion while paying attention and giving space for someone to share as they get to that level four or five, it's really, really important, and it's really, really hard. And what you do matters. The fact that they set up times like you can think about it, talk about it, it matters, and, and we can all continue to grow uh, in listening. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk around uh, tables about some questions here, and then I'm going to stay around in case there's Q&A afterward. But the three questions Michelle and I kind of went over to put together that you can talk about are, first, what kinds of crisis have you been most likely to hear in your group context? Just think recently. What kinds of stuff have, 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 uh, have come out at your tables? Secondly, in the list of do's and don'ts that I mentioned today, which are the most natural for you and which are the most difficult? Are there some of these that you find, ooh, I think I do that a lot, or which ones are hardest for you to, to do or not do? And then uh, which idea talked about today would you most like to incorporate more into your leadership skills? So this is the time just to discuss around your tables. I'll stick around, and afterward, when we, if we have time. Thank you very much. Tiffany, um, thank you. Another thing, women's groups always clap, which is nice. <laughs> Men's groups are like what? And we can give you a, a chocolate cupcake. Uh, just a, one of the things that Pastor Brian mentioned was the note that his brother Joe sent him that I jotted down. Not because your brother said it, but... Um, oh, it is, because you, know, you love my brother. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, I, I grew up in his brother's church. That's uh, where I actually fell in love with Jesus. And then, and then we moved. But um, when he said that ministry happens first in relationship over time and in pain. And it stuck out to me primarily because that's what you all are doing. You have 14 weeks with these ladies. You have the opportunity to build relationship over time and through their pain. And as Brian also mentioned, that they come sometimes wondering if it's going to be safe to say, I was, and you fill in the blank, or I am, and fill in the blank. If they've determined that it's a safe place to do that, and sometimes it happens in this session of the January to April time frame. So take um, just a few minutes around your table, maybe five, six minutes around your tables, and then jot down a couple of notes of what stands out to you. We'll touch on those, and then we're going to open it up as a Q&A. But I do want to plant a seed for you, Brian. You had mentioned... Um, in the layers and piles that sometimes happen, you use the example of a job loss, and you said, ask a follow-up question. So I just want to plant the seed of what might that follow-up question look like for someone in grief, someone in crisis, if you can have just a couple of those um, ready to share with us. So again, take about five, six minutes around your tables. Okay. 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 Okay.